This episode is brought to you by Certified Piedmontese Beef. Listen up, foodies. Make your next meal even better with real Nebraska beef. They have healthy, tender, delicious Italian heritage beef, grass-fed and sustainably raised on lush pastures in the Midwest. You can even create your own personally curated meat box that's shipped right to your door. To get two free steaks with any purchase over $50, use the code FREEBEEF at checkout. Learn more and shop exclusively at cpbeef.com. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Bear. The hit series returns with Jeremy Allen White in the Golden Globe-winning role of Carmi. He and the team will transform their family sandwich shop into a next-level spot, all while being forced to come together in new ways as they confront their past and reckon with who they want to be in the future. FX is the bear. All episodes now streaming only on Hulu. Hello and welcome to One for the Road with me, Sober Dave. I'm going to be talking to some incredible guests over the next few weeks, all of whom have made the decision to look at their relationship with alcohol and take steps towards a positive change. My guests are all at different points in their journey, but all have powerful and uplifting stories to share. And that's why I hope you find each episode a valuable source of inspiration and insight. This season's podcast is sponsored by a great new startup called Tweak Life. They have built a well-being hub full of useful information of tweaks that you can make, including mindfulness, nutrition, exercise, managing addictions, improving your finances and even the menopause. The last few years have been really tough for us all. And with this in mind, Louise created this hub hoping to help individuals and businesses offer this to their employees and apply some of these tweaks to make a difference to people's lives. This is free to use, so for more information, please go to tweaklife.co.uk. My guest today on One for the Road is a Sunday Times bestselling author, Speaker, novelist, and host of the number one creative careers podcast, Control-Alt-Delete. She recently wrote a piece for The Guardian which headlined, I knew I didn't have a drinking problem, but I had a problem with drinking. And I really enjoyed today's conversation. So it gives me great pleasure to introduce you to today's wonderful guest, Emma Gannon. Hi, Emma. Welcome to One for the Road. How are you today? Hi, Dave. Thank you so much for having me. I'm a listener of the podcast. I absolutely love it. So thrilled to be on. Well, it's a pleasure as well. And you've got a magnificent podcast as well, which we can talk about later. But uh, as you know, being a listener, um, these are live stories. And I was really keen on getting you on because um, you had a piece in The Guardian that I read. And it really intrigued me, actually because of what you're doing now with your drinking and and that's a great conversation and much needed one but before we get into that we'll be able to go right back 
and um, talk about what it was like for you growing up and then when your drinking actually started to enter your life. Yes. So drinking has been a part of my life from as early as I can remember. I'm from a family of really fun people. <laughs> and I know that, you know, fun in, in air quotes there because I am associating it with sort of partying and I've got half sisters and a half brother and they're from like the Gen X generation. So they were always going out and I was always watching them like get ready to go to the clubs when I was really little. And, you know, just my parents drink every night. It's part of what they do. They don't have a problem with it. They, they love it. But, um, but yeah, like it was always around. It was always a part of life. And I think, I mean, we'll get onto it, but that sort of idea of alcohol being like in the very fabric of life, like you, you don't even notice it's there because it's so normal, normalized. Um, so yeah, that's sort of a little bit of context from growing up. And, um, and, and I've been unpicking that ever since really. It's really interesting what you're saying there that, um, um, when you say they don't have a problem with it, it's what we assume, isn't it? But when from the outside you look at it, they're drinking every night. Is that habit or is that because they want to unwind or it's deeper than that, you know? And when you grow up around it, it's, you, as you say, you don't really question it. I mean, my mum and dad didn't really drink, but my dad used to make homemade wine. And what I realised when I got older was the percentage of that was off the scale. I mean, it wasn't like your 11% bottle of wine from Morrison's. It was uh, some of the wine he brewed was unbelievable, you know, but I, I never kind of really associated that growing up with them having a problem because we're not educated around that. So, but when you see it on a day-to-day level, it does, as you say, imprint in your mind, doesn't it? It does. And I suppose it's interesting that I mentioned their generations there because they're two different generations from me and that's not an excuse or me not wanting to dig into it it's just that for me my journey on questioning my own alcohol use has been very much trying not to have an opinion on others Mm. and I'm hoping that even by questioning your own drinking because I notice that when I don't drink around them that's been the biggest challenge for me is because it means I'm not joining in it means Mm. I'm not being fun in air quotes and that sort of family dynamic of like having the Prosecco and celebrating and having dinner together and my dad getting out the the red wine you're like that was the hardest bit for me is saying no to something and I'm a people pleaser in recovery mm. that's another thing I've been trying to work on but um you know I I'm just really trying hard not to kind of try and diagnose everyone else if they to be honest don't seem like they do have a problem even though now I've read all the books I'm like hmm why do we uh fill mm. a void every night but um yeah for me it's been very much on me and that's where that that's how I'm finding it the easiest as well I mean sometimes we relate to our own drinking when we look at others so when you just said that then my mum and her husband used to drink every night but they would only have two I think vodka and tonic and they would use measures as well and they wouldn't drink till eight o'clock so when they used to come and stay with me it was really irritating because it was like I want to start at three o'clock on a Saturday afternoon so I used to say to them oh come on it's a gorgeous day why don't you have a shandy or something just just so (laughs) that I could start and by the time they started at eight I was absolutely blasted do you know what I mean but they used to drink every day, but it was actually really moderate. So I think I was just comparing it to my drinking, I suppose. 
Yeah. And you know, what's really interesting is, and I saw a hypnotherapist recently about this, and I don't know if it's something we talk about, but I got quite obsessive in my thinking about alcohol, not actually the alcohol. So I would think about it all day. I'd be like, oh, should I have a drink tonight? Should I not have a drink tonight? But I never actually did drink. It was like my thoughts about alcohol had spiraled. And my parents, I look at them, they don't think about it in the day. They don't care. They just have their drink and they go, they, yeah. they have a nice evening and they go to bed. On paper, are they drinking too much every night? Like if a doctor was here, probably. But I had more of a problem, even though I wasn't even drinking, if that makes sense. Mm, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It does dominate the mindset. So growing up, and then you went to uni, and you know what that's like, student oh union bars. And so is that when you start to um, get stuck in? <laughs> yes. And you know what? I didn't like university. I look back now, and I got through it. It was fine. I also feel really lucky and you know privileged to have gone. And I'm sure it, you know, played a big role in me getting, you know, to where I am now because, you know, doing the English degree and writing essays and doing all that and being in the library. Like, I completely acknowledge it was an important part of my life. But I, that something wasn't right about that whole culture. And I think a lot of us don't really like it. and We pretend we do. That whole thing of just feeling like you have to get really drunk, mm. feeling like, it is part of the freshers week culture of just, if you don't get stuck in, you're the weird one. You're then alienated. You're already feeling alienated because you're not with your home friends or you're not in your mm. own environment. I think it's a way to cover up all that social anxiety. People will just get stuck in because there's nothing else to do. And I just felt anxious for three years and, you know, I did get stuck in, but I, I knew it. I was kind of going against my, my own personality. It, it really wasn't fun at all. Yeah, um, I did a talk in a college um, a few months ago, and that was scary, to be honest. <laughs> and it was on a Monday morning as well at 9am, and I was thinking they'd probably walk in and think, oh, my God, not another bloody preacher. Um, but I, I just let them know about my story, and the biggest thing that stuck with them was that you don't have to get drunk to enjoy yourself. Um, and I received messages weeks after from different people saying what stuck with me the most was that. And it's interesting because when when you go to uni, I didn't do it. I mean, I was in the era that you go out at 15 and start grafting, you know. But you're then trying to fit into a new identity, aren't you? You, you go into a different place to live um, and you might be anxious about uni and whatever and then you're meeting new people and then the last thing you want to be saying really is or oh, i'm not drinking or i don't drink it's it's really hard to fit in isn't it it is and and I, honestly that would have been really amazing if i'd have seen a talk like yours at uni because i think that's why your work is so powerful is because we just need a little bit of a permission slip to say you know you don't have to do this right because I think you're so stuck in this so social culture of just feeling like you don't have a choice and just someone saying, actually, you do. That yeah. would have um, that would have changed everything for me, I think. Yeah, and that's why we're out there banging the drum, I think, because there's um, a lot of stuff about shame and stigma and, and stuff like that. And as we all know, it's the only drug you have to justify not having, which is crazy in these days, you know. But I think... The work we're all doing, uh, including this podcast, is really important. People listen to it and then start conversations up, you know. So uni, you flew through that. And then what was next? 
So then it was the working world. Yes. And I joined an agency. It was like a digital PR agency. And again, I feel like I want to be liked. I feel like I want to fit in. Um, a lot of the socializing after work involved a lot of drinking. If anything, it was a continuation of, of uni culture, which was surprising to me, I think. But I was in my early 20s, so I just kind of carried on. And um, and again, just felt really anxious about it all. I think, you know, the whole waking up the day after and not knowing really what you've said and have you said too much and everyone trying to kind of find out stuff about you. Yeah, it wasn't really a great time. And most people say, well, I was in that industry that um, it was fueled by alcohol, but you know, the amount of people that come on these podcasts that are in very different industries. So it's wherever you look. And in a way, it's about how you feel about yourself, isn't it? It's like if you, like you say, you're a people pleaser. So you're going to go into this new job and you're going to want to be good at your job. You want to be accepted in a social environment. You don't, you know, like want to go for a drink Friday with the team and say, well, actually, um, I'm trying not to drink because it's too awkward. So you go along with it, don't you? That's the thing. And that's what's really interesting about this whole conversation, because for me, yes, it's about alcohol. Of course it is. But it's about a much bigger thing for me. It's about boundaries. It's about being able to say no. It's about having like the confidence in who you are as a person to be like, I'm actually worthy and of value to this situation, even if I'm not drinking. And that's the thing that really stood out to me when I read Quit Like a Woman by Holly Whitaker, which is just what you said. It's it's almost socially unacceptable to not drink. And that is fascinating now that I've opened my eyes to it. You know, I was at a wedding over the weekend and there was a guy there who had a non-alcoholic beer in one of those like sleeves because mm. um, he was covering up the bottle. And he was yeah. like, whispered to me, you know, I read your Guardian article. I'm not drinking, but I don't want anyone to know. And I just find that, yeah, that that's just the fascinating thing to me. Now I look back on my life and I'm like, no wonder I mucked in. Yeah, it's sad as well. I mean, I'm the opposite of that. I go in and wave the non-alcoholic beer around and say, hey, yeah. <laughs> you know. But and I hope we big... get there. Yeah. Well, we're all different as well, aren't we? And we've all got a different relationship with it. And, um, I mean, I know um, she won't mind me saying, Janie Lee Grace, she's a Radio 2 presenter, and she didn't tell anyone for nearly a year that she wasn't drinking because she found it too awkward. So she would just go to these things and get an non-alcoholic drink and maybe look like it is or, or don't even mention it, you know, where I came out of the closet straight away with it. It's like, I'm sober now, I'm 54 years old, covered in tattoos, and I'm a bloke from Croydon. Take it or leave it whatever uh, you know what I mean I, I was like really but that was that was how I could do it myself I had to make myself accountable and that's by setting up my sober Dave account help make me accountable and once I did that people started DMing me and like oh god I really relate to your story I think it's really brave and I did this talk in a pub oh my god I, I was like Oh, a couple of months sober in a pub in Forest Hill. It was packed. And when I got there, they said, oh, you're last on. I was like, no, like normally you'd have three drinks. And, you know, so I sat there for like, the whole thing and all these people were smashing these talks and whatever. But I was sitting by the bar where they were pouring my favorite beer. You know, once I got up there and I started talking I was looking at people's reactions and afterwards the amount of people came up to me. There's a fireman who had stopped drinking and 
he come up to me, he said, mate, everything you said is so relatable. And after that, it was like, oh, there's, there's a lot of power in these conversations. And I think like when you wrote that piece in the guardian, I saw that and it was like, that's just brilliant. You know, for, for getting it out there, you're a writer and that, that whole, what your industry is just packed with drinking, mm-hmm. isn't it? Yeah. Well, thank you. Cause I, I'm not surprised that that was really powerful, that, that talk. And I think what's, what I found is that when you stop drinking, people kind of, it's almost like you're slightly magnetic because people start coming over to you or wanting to talk to you or wanting to know more. And I think mm. that's someone going, Oh, and it's quite good over there. I think I should investigate that. And, you know, the Guardian article started with um, me talking about an interview I did with Ruby Warrington, who wrote the Sober Curious book. And I interviewed her in December 2019. I was hungover interviewing her. And I look at the photo now and I'm like, God, I just was not in a good place during that interview. And um, and she started talking about the book and I was so, I'm so defensive in the interview. I'm like, oh, why would you not drink? Like, you know and I'm really covering up obviously something hidden deep inside and now I can notice it with other people when they're palming it off and yet it took me like six months or so to read the book and then I read the book and I've really not looked back you know it's it's completely changed my outlook and it's about being curious as to what you'd be like without it. Because mm. like we were saying at the beginning of this interview, if I've been in like a Weatherspoons in Exeter since I was like 15 years old, I don't actually know who I am without drinking occasionally or drinking a bit or or having like a two-day hangover every now and again. Mm. And um, I did a Hindu sober recently. I did mm. a road trip to California for two weeks recently sober. And um, it is amazing to get curious about what that is like because it's quite it's quite trippy in a good way. Like you're really seeing the world and it's amazing. I I love that phrase curious. And one of my favorite words is explore to explore something different because we get in this groove, a bit like a scale electric car and it stays in the groove. And because of everything around us, how it's advertised everywhere, it's a lot easier to stay in that groove and conform to everyone Mm -hmm. else. Right. So to take yourself out of that is where a lot of people, they don't feel comfortable enough to do it, so they carry on drinking. And what I read in in your Guardian piece was that lockdown was extremely challenging because I'm a grey area drinking coach and I found lockdown, just the amount of people that were sending me DMs, I'm, you know, a year in. I'm in trouble because let's remind ourselves that in the beginning of lockdown, the weather was sublime. There was, um, I think, an app called House Party and everyone was sending videos of them sunbathing. It was like a massive holiday, wasn't it, in the beginning? Uh, wine o'clock started lunchtime. And, but gradually, Zoom came in and, and work started coming back where we had to do Zoom meetings. And people were saying to me, oh, I'm even drinking wine out of a tea mug uh on a zoom uh and then Jeez. it gets to two o'clock and my meetings are ended so i'm on it then you know and i found so many gray area drinkers were drinking more and that's what happened to you right yeah because even though um you know i've shared a bit about growing up and uni and work that was always on a weekend that was always on a friday night i, I didn't really drink in the week i just didn't really think about it and 
even though I've said, you know, how alcohol really played a part, like it just, it was like I binge. I was like a binge drink on the weekends. So There's nothing that unique about that, but it was still something that we should talk about. And in the lockdowns, that's when it crept into the week. And that's when it crept into like a Tuesday evening. And then that's when it crept into every night of the week. And I write about in that Guardian article about how even Gwyneth Paltrow was talking about how she had a cocktail every night. And I was like, well, if she's doing it, that's fine because she's like the wellness woman. And, um, and it really wasn't fine. And my husband, Paul, he doesn't really drink. And he just said to me one evening, you're really drinking quite a lot, you know, just pointing it out. And then I got really snappy with him because I was like, it's the lockdown. What do you expect? Everyone's doing it. And I really, really love that he points it out because um, it was like slightly out of character. And also I think he could tell that I was drinking a different way. Something had changed. And that's what why I write about it because I felt like I had a tiny glimpse and I'm not saying it's anything similar to like fully kind of being in, in, the, in like the place you were, for example. But I felt myself sliding into a place that really scared me. Mm. Um so I knew I had to kind of pull it back. It's interesting you say that, right? Because I've examined my history of drinking and it went in stages. And that's why I relate to it like a, a long-term relationship where in the beginning, it's all exciting. You spend weekends in bed and you always going out, fancy meal. Everything's great. And, oh, look at my new boyfriend. And, you know, but gradually you settle down and then you get into your own way of life. And my drinking was like that because it stopped being exciting. And then I started to rely on it in a social situation. But then I started to drink in a solitary situation. I become a recluse. And it, it changed over the years. You know, and what Paul said to you was really fascinating, actually, that he noticed it in you that maybe he noticed actually that you weren't reacting the same to your glass of wine and, and you were maybe more numb or, or complacent about it and not as conversational. Yeah. You know, these little pieces that indicate that the relationship with alcohol is changing and that always manifests more. People start to, finish the bottle and then go, well, I might just have one more because their tolerance goes up. And that's what I found mm-hmm. in lockdown, that the the amount was increasing. That's it. And um and it was, yeah, like that that inability to stop, I don't think I actually really had before. And I think what I've realized, and I really want to caveat like this is just me talking about my own personal journey. I just I think whatever works for you works for you. And all our journeys are different, but because I know talking about moderation can be a little bit, a bit dangerous in a way, because I wouldn't want someone to be like, well, that works for her. So I'll try that. Because for some people, it's completely valid and real that they need to completely stop and not look back. But for me, I, I found like I could know when I was not in a good place. And so that's when I shouldn't really go near alcohol. I go with the ebbs and flows now of how I am. So when I'm in kind of an all right place and I just fancy a glass of wine, I can do that now because I'm not binging. I'm not filling a hole. I'm So that Guardian article came from a place of, I really want to write about this from a nuanced perspective. And I don't know if this will make sense, but I wanted to give up getting drunk. So I've given up getting drunk. I don't get drunk anymore. Yeah. I am not interested in like that feeling of feeling out of control, but I haven't given up drinking because I still can enjoy the odd glass of wine and I'm yeah. doing it now. And so I, I don't know if that makes, I think, well, you said it makes me unique, but um, I really have to check in with myself and how I'm feeling mm. 
Um, and that's a very personal journey. Yeah, I want to talk a bit more about that later on because that's fascinating because, as I said previous to this, that you're a five percenter because I've looked into this as well and I hardly know anyone that when they get to a certain stage, they can then start to moderate. So let's delve into that. But So through lockdown, things changed. And um, how did you come across Jolene Park then? I think I watched her TED Talk Yeah, a while ago. Yeah, so that was um, fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I met her. I went to one of her seminars in London, actually, and she was going up Scotland straight after. And I had a brief chat with her. And then I, I didn't have anything more to do with her. And then I was approached by Penguin to write a book and I did the proposal and it wasn't quite what they wanted, not quite what I wanted as well. And then I thought, well, maybe I need to expand myself in other areas. So I did her a course, which was brilliant to become a grey area drinking coach. And that's where you started looking into the fascinating yeah. subject of grey area drinking because it's a relatively new thing, wasn't it? Yeah. And to be honest, I still, I still don't know if I completely understand like how you can fall into that gray area and whether you can get yourself back out. I mean, could you, can you explain like what it actually means? Well, it's when um, you were a gray area drinker, but this, the thing is with you, because you, you, you could take it or leave it to a certain extent and you weren't dependent on it and you hadn't hit certain rock bombs. So for me, I could not take or leave it if someone said to me why don't you stop drinking i will burst out laughing uh and i hit several rock bombs so i was Mm -hmm. right down the other scale of being extremely dependent on it i didn't i didn't even want to entertain the fact of giving up you know but gray area some people can go weeks without having a drink but if they're questioned well you might as well stop then if you you can do that well i don't want to stop i like a glass of wine every now and again or whatever you know so there's a big space in between someone who doesn't care i mean for me i love chocolate but if i never had it ever again i wouldn't it wouldn't bother me you know but with booze it was different so i mean i feel like also for me raising my awareness of it and what it is so basically this is going to make me sound maybe a bit weird and woo woo but my consciousness around it has obviously become clearer so I'm not doing it sort of in a numb way I'm not doing it in a like so during the lockdown I was just drinking in front of the TV and I didn't even realize I was doing it mm. now it's like I know what it is like I've read Hollywood Tucker's book I know that like alcohol is literally ethanol that's like in petrol and yeah. toxic fumes like I know it's not good for me and I know that one glass of wine I really enjoy still and I know that I can like have a cup of tea afterwards and go to bed because I'm back in that place mm. and so what I'm finding fascinating is my relationship with alcohol I'm feeling changes based on whether I'm okay or not mm. so last night for example with the Queen's funeral mm. I was feeling really sad because the energy of London felt really heavy even if like you don't personally necessarily care so much I felt like there was an atmosphere and I was like, oh, I'm feeling really uncomfortable. And I had this feeling that was similar to being in the lockdown where I was like, I want to drink, I want to drink. Mm. And so I didn't because that was not a good place for me to have a drink. And I don't know if this is making sense, but it really depends on like how I am and Mm. whether I'm just being really conscious of the decision. But that, that is, if there is or not a healthy relationship with alcohol, that 
to me sounds the most healthiest it could be because you're not drinking if you're upset, if you're emotional. Um, because I read something that you said, you know, if you have a, a steak or something, you'll have a glass of red wine. Well, that one goes with the other kind of thing. But for me and, and several thousands listening to this, that one glass of wine is like a greyhound out of a trap. Once it goes up, they have, you know, and for me, it was a sign of, right, you can get drunk now. Mm-hmm. I, I could, my brain wouldn't rationalize it in any other way. You know, it was all or nothing. And even to the extent that if I knew that I couldn't get drunk, I would rather have none. That's my relationship. I, I could go to a pub and think, well, actually, something's happening later. Um, and I, I can't be drunk for that, whatever it could be. So I would rather not have anything than have two. Because two would just yeah. set me off. And and that yeah. mindset alone is, now I don't drink. It's, well, like, surely you could have done. But, no, I, I always try and take my back, myself back to how I was feeling then. And it was all or nothing mentality. And there were a lot of people like that. And it seems to me that you've caught it at the right time. I think so. and I But I'm also really aware, and I, even when I was writing that article, like, I really take it seriously though that I'm not I, I I was nervous about saying that because I really don't want anyone listening who's given up and has to give up and can't moderate I don't want them to feel like oh well she can so what am I missing you know like I just feel like we have to really really understand and and, and acknowledge the difference between the two I, like, I, I like completely hear you because even when um I invited you on. It was like, how can we do this that it won't encourage people to say, well, she can do it, I can do it, right? And I think there's certain questions you have to ask yourself. It's like, if I do have one, you nailed it just now. I can have one and then have a cup of tea after. That's the question you asked yourself. Yeah. Because for me, it's like, why the hell would I want a cup of tea if I've had to drink? Yes, I know. never... It's a great question, you know, because that's when you find out if you can even entertain that idea. And the other thing is, is for people, they get complacent. And you've said in the beginning, you don't get complacent, right? Is that they will go for 30 days, 100 days, and they think then they've beaten it and they can have one drink. And as soon as that conversation starts, it's game over most of the time, because you're allowing it back in. You're giving it back the power. So I think the key here for you was that you was curious right from the off. And some people, they get along the line enough where, where maybe it's taken hold a bit more. That's yeah. just my analysis of it. And It's fascinating. It really is because I... And I really hope this makes sense because I, I am trying. It's like the first time I've really tried to kind of verbalize it. But I know physically and emotionally and like energetically when and when I should, when I when I can like have a nice glass of wine or like a margarita when I was in Spain the other day and one. I know when that's possible for me. And I also know when I need to not do that. It's because I know if I'm having a drink now out of like, this is nice. I'm going to enjoy this like a chocolate bar. And I know when I'm having a drink because something's like triggered me or I feel rubbish about myself or I'm sad or I'm grieving or I feel really lost. 
And I just think it's really interesting. Like, even if we're talking about, we're talking about alcohol now, but we could be talking about any other thing that if you have too much of it is really not good. It's, it's all about getting to know yourself. And I just feel like I'm on this journey now of like being so aware of what I'm just taking in and consuming. It's honestly the same with um, social media. If I'm feeling really not great, I, there's things that I avoid and I will not go on certain apps or see certain things. And, uh, and for me, that kind of, that, that makes sense, that link, but, um, but yeah. Yeah. Um, because a lot of people say to me, uh, I get DMS and it's, um, from guys specifically that go out with groups of guys, right. And, and they say, I felt really boring. Um, I didn't know how to act. I don't know who I am anymore. And that's so like, I say it's like a snake shed in its skin. You have to try and leave that old version behind and explore, there I'll go, explore the new version of you. And that can be encouraged by changing certain lifestyles. So like you, when you saw Jolene's TED talk and you start to introduce different things into your life. So like good nutrition, early nights, exercise, all different things to give yourself the best chance possible. Because I know that when I was drinking, I was lazy. I'd have poor food choices. My sleep was terrible because I would wake up three o'clock in the morning, sweating and worrying about the next day and that. So, but the biggest thing, and I, I'd love you to tell me, is how you start to feel about yourself when you when you don't lose yourself. Because when when you drink, you lose yourself, don't you? And you, and you go off on a different tangent in your mind. And when you stop, you're fully present, aren't you? Yeah, it's honestly been amazing, and um, and I feel so. I feel completely changed. I feel so in control of. Well, actually, I don't know if that's the right word. What I feel like is I'm not abandoning myself anymore. I feel like I'm checking in with myself. Everything I do feels like I'm I'm saying I'm consenting is how I feel, actually. I feel like I'm not just going along with stuff. And what I love is, I know this is maybe different because I'm sort of, you know, grey area, but um, because a lot of my friends and family read the Guardian article and they, and they also know that I sometimes drink and sometimes don't, depending on how I am, they... Um, it makes it much easier now for me to opt in or opt out. Mm. So we'll like, they'll, you know, sit around and we'll be ordering drinks and I will either, I, most of the time I order a mocktail or uh, alcohol free beer. Like most of the time I don't drink. Um, and what I love is they just, they get that now and all of that awkwardness has gone away. And because a lot of that awkwardness, actually I was feeling, they didn't actually care as much as I thought they would care. Yeah. Um, so it's just made everything easier because everything's just, I'm not going along with stuff as much. It feels, yeah. feels amazing. And what you just said really spoke to me that it has a knock-on effect. So this this boundary issue I had with drinking where I just went along with everything um, has seeped into my work, has seeped into my personal life. Like I'm so much better at saying no in work now. Um, my confidence has grown. Uh, it, it's It's like affected everything. It does because you begin to know yourself and you begin to understand what you want and what you don't want. But I think when you drink, and especially for me when I got to my level, is that I had no self-respect, no self-esteem. So I was like an actor. You know, I I would go into the pub, my local, and I would perform. So if there was a solicitor there, I'd perform in a certain way. If there was a builder, I'd perform. You know, it's the performance. And when I would leave and go over to the office and get my eight cans of diamond white, I would go home 
and I'd be like this solitary loner that had, had nothing. It was all, it was a weird experience when I look back on it. And then I stopped going to the pub and just did the loner thing. Mm. And that was a whole new level, you know. But um, yeah. have you found now that you've changed your relationship with alcohol, that your writing's changed? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I don't know if my kind of outward writing has changed that much. I've always, I have always, like, always been quite honest in my writing. But what I found is my personal relationship with myself in like my private writing, because I have a journal and I, mm. I like doing my morning pages, and I, I feel like I'm being honest with myself, like in private more. If that makes sense. Mm, yeah. Um, so yeah, I feel like that's been really great. I just feel like I know myself more and being honest with myself more. It's been also quite painful at times because I'm not masking some issues that I was didn't want to look at. So like there's been friendships that have kind of gone. Um there's been things I've had to say no to. There's just been like kind of awkward situations that I've been putting off because I was just drinking it away. Yeah. So, you know, it's not all easy because you're having to face reality. But it's so much better than the alternative. It's healthier, isn't it? Because yeah. you, you kind of, I always say it's like tidying up the uh, man drawer. Michael McIntyre did a whole sketch about the man drawer <laughs> yeah. where there was a Nokia 3310 in it and old flat batteries and car keys that don't belong anywhere. And, and for me, maybe my man drawer was a lot less than yours. And because I was drinking longer than you've been here, you know, but. I always say as well, it's relative to the person they're drinking. So it's not a case of, I was drinking this, you were only drinking. It's the relationship we have with it, right? And we all have our own relationship with alcohol. And and some people, they have a couple of glasses of wine, and they that affects their parenting, that affects their anxiety, low mood, whatever. So mm-hmm. it doesn't really matter about the quantity. Yeah, and, and also, it's really funny that you mentioned that because... um. I look back now and honestly, like wine makes me really sleepy and boring. I'm not more fun and I'm not more clear. It's the clarity of thought that it's given me, which has been amazing because I'm just, I don't like, no, I don't know anyone can, who can actually say they're like better when they've been drinking. Do you know what I mean? It's like everything yeah. is better when it's gone because yeah. all of the truth of who you are is coming out. You make sense more. It's very funny being sober now around people because I'm now just seeing what I used to be like. So I have lots of empathy but I realized that, you know, you, you can't connect. You can't truly connect with someone who has been drinking and you can't truly connect when you have been drinking, I believe. Maybe that's a bold statement, no, but I believe, that's, I, believe, I believe that to be true. The connection that I feel to myself and others now is, um, is, is amazing. I, um, there's a Johan Hari TED Talk about a rat park and his statement is connections the opposite of addiction. Right. And I believe the connection with ourselves is so important because for me, I was just lost. I had no connection. I was going with the flow. I was going, and and as I say, like an act, I was just had this script in my life that I was glugs, the drinker. That was my identity. You know, like Mr. Big in prison. And I've been in there for 40 years and I run the pre, you know, I thought I knew it all. And when I come out, my identity was stripped and I looked around and thought, I don't know what to do. I, I don't recognize anything in my life. And I was 54, right? So for me to do that and then think, I don't know how to be in these situations. I've got no confidence. I've got a lot of um, stuff that I haven't looked at all my life. And I almost reverted back to a 14-year-old kid when I started drinking. And it was really, really scary. Mm-hmm. But what I did, I hooked onto the community 
of like-minded people who had walked these steps in front of me and I hooked onto them, piggybacked off of them. And it's like, actually ironic, I was saying about Janie Lee Grace, she held an event and I was about three weeks sober and I went to that and I met Claire Pooley, William Porter and that. And I always remember, I've said this before, I was on the train after and there's so many drunk people on the train. And I thought, God, this is, this is, it sounds weird to be on a train at 11 o'clock at night sober, but I'd never done it for 40 years. So for me to see that was like, there's something in this, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and it made such a difference to my personal journey. And that's why I always say to people that community is so important that mm. people were relatable or people will get you without yeah. you having to explain it too much. It's so true. And, and actually, something I really wanted to say, because it's why I think your work is so brilliant, is I think women have a lot of social pressures and we you know, made to feel many different ways for many different reasons. But most of the people that got in touch with me after my article came out were, were men. And like, I don't really have any men that follow me and <laughs> my work. Like on Instagram, it's 90% millennial women. And um, and I, I'd like more men to follow my work, but but it doesn't really happen weirdly. And that article, I had so many messages from from men who just I don't think would have crossed paths, like probably nothing in common really. And they were saying thank you so much for writing it. And I think men actually have so much on their shoulders that we don't talk about. And this kind of performance that you just said, I think so many men feel like they have to perform. They they have so many social pressures we don't talk about and. I, th- I really think like men who are looking at their drinking is, is a huge, hugely brilliant thing. And um, mm. I just want to say that's why I think you're connecting with so many people as well. No, no that's important to say. And uh, I'm the same. My I have 86% women follow me, right? But I have the men that follow me are curtain twitches. And they might send me a DM and say, Dave, I'm worried. But in general, they don't talk about it. And that, you know, that could be an era thing. That could be my age thing. But when I look at my stats, that the most people that engage me are between 35 and 48 or something, right? Men still don't want to talk about it. They don't want to acknowledge it as being as much as a problem. So, for instance, it could be... Uh, you said to Paul, if he drank, Paul, I'm a little bit concerned with your drinking, right? And where you acknowledged that and accepted that, he, as a man, he could say, what are you talking about? It's just a few beers with a football. Or, uh, you know, I work hard. I'm entitled to a a couple of beers, right? And it's it's not, it might be for Paul, but for men, it's like, well, actually, you drink 10 cans of Stella a night. That's not Mm -hmm. a couple of beers, you know. So men, there aren't as many grey area drinkers as in men, because they go past that. Well, I think women, they acknowledge things quicker and they identify it being, it's a fascinating subject. And well, I, yeah. I analyse things and work things out. And most of my clients are women and, and it's, it's the parenting, it's the anxiety. Age is a thing, right? <laughs> and it's true that I think God. I'm 45 now and five years going to be 50. Do I want to be an old lush? No, you know, like there's a lot of elements that come into it, but with the men, I I really want to try it and make it more, these conversations more accessible for them to reach out and go, actually, yeah, I have got a problem and I want to do something about Mm -hmm. it, you know? Yeah. Um, So I'm really, really pleased to hear that that article did 
reach out to those men and they contacted you, send them our way. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I will. I absolutely will. <laughs> so when I asked about your work, it's just that I've talked to a lot of musicians on this podcast and I've said to them, like, has your music improved? And like Cher Adelican is the bass guitarist of the Grillers. And he said his work is just incredible now because he's got so much more clarity. So that's why I asked you about that. But do you want to tell the listeners about your work? Because you've written quite a few books now, haven't you, for a young lady? Mm-hmm. Yes, I've got another one coming out in April. And actually, it's it's interesting you asked that. And I sort of said no, because I, I haven't really seen necessarily a change in the work. But one thing I will say it's changed is, um, and I was talking to Clover Stroud about this, who, who, I, who talks a lot about... Um, She's given up drinking I think, yeah, for a year I'm now. I met Clover. Yeah, she. I was talking to her about it, and it's the first person I told about this. Basically, I realised that I was drinking quite a lot around really good moments of my life, not because I was trying to numb out bad stuff. I was actually numbing out some highs because I was so uncomfortable with how like great something was, which is wow. wild and weird, and um around the time of my debut novel, which is like a lifelong dream of mine. Like I, I, all I wanted to do is write a novel and I just can't believe when it happened. And it happened in a very kind of grand way um, in that HarperCollins offered me, you know, like a load of money for this book and, and it was amazing. And, um, and I was drinking a lot around that time because I just found it all overwhelming in a good way, but I couldn't cope with it really. And so what's been interesting now is I'm going through a sort of similar thing at the moment with the book that's coming out in April. And I'm having to feel like all the like really uncomfortable feeling of accepting how scared I am that it's going well. Because yeah. I, I wrote a book called Sabotage about this, about yeah. how we self we self-sabotage sometimes because we're scared of our own happiness. Yeah. And we're scared of our own success, ironically. Yeah. Um, so I have something in me at the moment that's like kind of wanting to sabotage things again. Um, but this time around, I'm just so much more conscious of what I'm doing and I'm just not going to go back there. I'm just not, I'm, I'm refused to kind of reach for that bottle of wine just to kind of make myself feel a little bit less, uh, emotional. That's really fascinating because as you know, I've just released my book and it's taken two years. I'm not really a writer and it's taken a, and it, and it's, it's made me dig deep into my own story. I even tried to visit my old house where I grew up in to experience the energy in the house, to to be able to extend what happened there when I started drinking, you know, and, and experience that I shared in the book. Uh, and the book came out. I had some great acknowledgements, Claire Pooley, William Port, Daisy Buchanan, you know, really, really, before it came out, it came out and uh, had a couple of trolls, gave it a one star. And all of a sudden it's like, mm. oh my God, what do I do with these feelings? What, to, how do I manage these emotions? And bless the queen died the day before my book launch as well. So I I had everything. I was planning a big um, book launch party in the evening with people all over the world on a line. And I felt what you've just ex, uh, explained to me, you know, like the imposter syndrome sort of thing of God, what am you know, my podcast is like most things I'm doing is I'm doing really well. Why if this book's a failure in that? And I did, I didn't think I was going to drink, but now you've said, explained it like that. I can really relate to how I was feeling as well. It's like, how do I manage these feelings? Mm -hmm. 
And my old default setting was have a drink, have a drink, have a drink. That that was default in me. And now I'm coming up to four years. It it wasn't default, but it was like I really struggled with it. It was like real anxiety. Do you know what I mean? Of yeah, my God, one. What if this is a flop? One people hate it. What am I going to do? How am I going to deal with it? And that. And I had two or three days, and you know the nation was all in turmoil because the Queen dying, and it was a real. It's kind of for me, it settled down a bit, but I can really. It's an unusual perspective that you shared there. I think is what well, I'm I, saying. I'm not sure people really because you know it's it's such an amazing thing to write a book and and I'm so grateful to have the opportunity to write a book like it's it's the most incredible job but I think we don't talk about that side of things as much like I've seen enough people now go through the process who feel very intense feelings around publication day it brings up so much emotion it brings up so much fear like actually quite animalistic fear because you're so exposed there's so many people ready to say things to you and I think I look back and I'm like, God, no wonder I like numbed out all that stuff over, over these books. And I'm really excited for the next one because it's changed. That's the one bit thing that has changed is I'm going to have to be really vulnerable, probably for the first time without leaning for a glass of wine. So yeah, but I'd rather be, I'd rather do it this way and I'm kind of ready for it. All I can see with that is in the future, if you're, if you're um, having this healthy relationship that you've got, with your drinking that can only be a good thing because what you said earlier is what actually are there any benefits to it at all really i mean for the for the people that i deal with no absolutely not but maybe you you know it might help you to relax and then you can relax and have a cup of tea yeah and and i have I've really changed my perspective on it. To be honest now i'm like an non-alcoholic beer or a real beer They're kind of the same to me because i'm only having one yeah. Like I just, I think I've taken out like the intensity of what it represents maybe, but I, but, but I really have now got to a point where I don't want to feel drunk anymore. Like that's changed for me. And I don't know whether it's because internally I've changed or it might be the hypnotherapy that I went through. Um, not that I'm trying to sell that to people who want to get to, to moderation, but it's like, I, I don't want to abandon what I've got going. And, and I think that's the sort of similar thing maybe to getting completely sober is I don't want to let this go and I don't want to fall back off this. So mm. I don't want to get really drunk ever again, basically. Um, but for me, I feel I feel like I can have mm. a glass of wine if if I can just feel like a little bit relaxed with that. I think what you're saying is, is because I always relate to it as a, a relationship, right? So your relationship with alcohol is non-conditional. Mine was always conditional, like it has to work both ways for me. And what you're saying as well, maybe reframe it to not, I don't want to ever get drunk again, is I don't want to ever lose myself again, because that's what where you are that's with it. it. You that's don't it. want to lose yourself because you don't feel comfortable with that. So yeah. I'm like, you can how can you how can you do it? But I you know, I'm really I, I do look at the back of like the percentages now, like I, if with a glass of wine, it has to be a really light one. Yeah, I'm not, I'm just not interested in alcohol, but I, I can, I can have something if it's not really doing much. And and I, and there's something probably in that that's like, what's the point? What is the point? And I actually do think in my future, I'm gonna, I, I, I see myself in quite a few years time 
well, not even that long away being sober. I really do. I think I'm gradually phasing it out, if I'm being honest, um, because there is there is no good that comes from it. I think I'm not quite ready yeah. to uh, maybe be maybe change my identity completely. Maybe that's something. And maybe then it won't be such a big thing. And you just exactly. say, I just don't drink. You know, yeah. for me, it's like I'm sober because look what I've been through. And oh, my God, I've overcome this terrible elephant in the room. But maybe for you, it's where I just don't drink. Yeah. I think Gabby Rosling's like that. It, she doesn't. It, oh, she's yeah. three years sober. I talked to her about it and she's. I just doesn't. I don't drink anymore. And that's it. You know, some yeah. people can. And she has so much energy. So I, I really saw that as inspiration. Um, but it's interesting how much alcohol really is more than just what it is, because I was on a weekend away recently and I didn't drink anything. I love going away by myself and writing. And I used to like get some wine in the room. Don't do that anymore. Just completely not interested in drinking by myself. And, um, and by the end of the trip, cause I kept ordering all these mocktails and I kept ordering all these like fancy spritzes or whatever, lemonades and stuff. And at the end, this woman was like, Oh, congratulations. I was like, on what and she was like oh you oh you're not pregnant then oh god and I was like is alcohol really that entrenched in our life that if we're not drinking it has to mean something so I do feel like I'm just I don't know I I I I find this topic endlessly fascinating for that reason that it's just so so embedded and it doesn't have to be (laughs) it is and and I think because of the work you do you have a lot of um power in your conversation and I and I think that guardian article because you're respected so much in in the work you do so it's articles like that guardian piece that has sparked conversation and there'll be people actually questioning their own relationship quietly you know like with some of the posts i put out there but the the best reactions i ever get is when i talk about gray area drinking right because people start to ask themselves questions and they you know, especially when it comes to parenting, am I present? When when they want me to read a bedtime story, am I fully there for them or do I make an excuse not to do it? And, oh, I'm tired, I've had a long day, I'll read to you tomorrow. Or, you know, when you wake up in the morning and, and the kids are noisy, you know, all, all these things, um, they start to ask themselves questions and then that seed is planted and then it, it moves on from there. But before we go as well, um, and thank you so much. Um, do you want to tell us about your podcast as well? Oh, thanks. Yeah. Um, so my podcast has been going for about five years now. It's called Control Alt Delete. And yeah, it's just a place really where I interview authors about their books and it's really honing in on careers, well-being and kind of business and social media. So those are my four themes for the podcast. But um but yeah, I, I can't honestly, I can't tell you how, how useful your podcast has been because I think when you're going through this stuff and you might not be surrounded by other people that are on the journey with you yet, aren't we lucky that we can connect with other people who are? There are so many episodes on this show that I just felt like that nuance had been captured and how it was mm. different for all of us. And, you know, we're all just trying our best at the end of the day. So. Thank we you are, so much. and I, I don't know if it's like this for you, but I genuinely love recording them because it's like having a coffee morning. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like, definitely. I just think these these open conversations, relaxed, and just putting it from our perspective, people relate to it. 
Uh, and some relate to others and more to other people, you know, but I always get people saying, oh, my God, that podcast with blah, blah, was it incredible. It really hit a note with me and it's changed everything. And, you know, uh, uh, that's why I love doing them. And um, I feel really, truly honoured that you've joined me today and shared your story with me as well. Uh, I'm so grateful. And, and I'm wishing you all the best for your new adventure in 2023. Are we not allowed to uh, mention what it is yet? Oh, the new book. Yeah. Yeah. So I've got a new book coming out in April. I think I can say what it is. Um, it's called The Success Myth. And it's looking at the sort of myths of success and how our sort of relationship with success might have changed post pandemic and finding our own definitions of it. So yeah, it's, it's quite, quite a vulnerable book about my journey into kind of realizing that the things I thought would make me happy didn't. And so my new, my new definition of success for myself. So yeah, it kind of ties into some of what we've been talking about, it but, does. Um, it really but does. thanks for creating such a safe space. Cause I don't, I don't think I really would want to talk about this, you know, in any other way. So you've really created a really great platform for people to be honest. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Emma. And, uh, sending you lots of love and best wishes for your new book. And, uh, I'll, I'll speak to you soon. Thank you. Thanks, Emma. Bye. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of One for the Road. Please remember to subscribe and leave a review. You can now download my app, Sober Dave, on the Apple and Google Play Store. And on there, you will find lots of tutorials, tips and support to help you stop drinking. And there are also meditation audios, food plans and chat forums. You can also find me on Instagram at Sober Dave. Please remember to join me for next week's episode. But until then, thanks for listening and have a great week.